Our financial destruction is happening just before our very eyes and designed by our own leadership. And you can see it falling apart now. It isn't a projection into the future. It is, is, isn't even dependent upon Bible prophecy, if you will. It should be open and obvious to anyone who has a mind to think at all. But where is our destruction coming from? And as I said last week, we worried about Russia for a couple decades or three. Uh, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming like Chicken Little. And now we've transferred it to uh, the East, to China. And now the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming. Now we were wrong about Russia, were we not? That doesn't mean we weren't scared. Now people are beginning to fear the Colossus of the East. Are they right or are they wrong? I want to continue in that today. I know I went pretty fast and covered a lot of area last time. I don't want to spend an undue amount of time on this or get into a long series of sermons because the destruction is coming and ultimately it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Uh, you know, if you, get, if you get shot, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference who pulled the trigger, does it? Uh, it, it you know, you're, you're dead anyway. Uh, and yet, it does have some bearing on our thinking, and we need to grasp and understand, I think, and understand God's Word. Because I don't care who worries about the Russians, or who worries about the Chinese, or who worries about whom. I only am concerned about what God in His Word tells us, because I know that it is a true witness, and it will happen as He says. So, I want to get more today into that. We touched upon a little bit last week uh, about the East, uh, the East Wind, and Japheth, Gog, and Magog, and so on. Uh, but I want to pick it up and pursue that thought just a little more before we move on, and that is in terms of the book of Ezekiel. Now, you will recall that I started through the book of Ezekiel as I have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, many other, and most of the other books of the Bible almost by now, uh, word by word and verse by verse. And I ceased at some point there in the book of Ezekiel, I don't remember exactly where, 21, uh, because there were some things in there that I wanted to search out and study some more and have a clearer understanding of before I finished it. I think we're getting close to that, so I want to renew that series at some point in the not-too-distant future and, and chase it on out in detail. So I'm not going to detail it today. I'm going to go over it and hit the very highest points uh, to give you something to read, to study ahead of time, even before we get there, but to also plug into the context of what we're talking about right now. So... To try to take extensive notes here for the next few minutes or hour and a half uh, would be um, difficult at best. I was told to slow down, but I'm not going to much uh, because I, got, I want to cover a lot of stuff. But I, I want to hit the high points, so listen more than notes, okay? And you can go back over the information at home in your Bible study and chase it out and see if what I'm saying is right. I just want to hit the high points. So... Uh, I'm not going to even turn to most of this, but in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 21 is against Israel, uh, 22 is a prophecy against Jerusalem also, or the Jews, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judah, and Israel. So there he 
analyzes the situation and God has him tell us, as a people, that we will be taken into captivity. Ezekiel 24 backs it up. Uh, well, wait a minute. 23 talks about our Assyrian lovers and how we run to the Assyrian. Now, that smacks of Hosea as well, where Ephraim, like a silly dove, goes to the Assyrian. We'll get to that. But he shows that the Assyrian are our lovers. And in verse 9 and verse 23 of Ezekiel 23, it shows that both Israel and Judah will be destroyed by their lovers, Assyria. Very plain in there. Now, this is leading up to the scriptures in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of Gog and Magog coming against Israel. We need to understand the background and context of that and where it leads to in terms of chronology to understand if it is indeed those from the east or from the north, our traditional enemies. But verses 9 and 23 show that it is our lovers, the Assyrians, who come against us. Ezekiel 24, I think I mentioned last week maybe about the boiling pot. He shows that he is going to take Israel apart in pieces and uses a boiling pot of stew as an analogy of what he will do to Israel. He doesn't throw us in whole. He cuts us in little pieces and throws us in the pot. Stew meat, if you will. Uh, And Ezekiel then himself becomes a sign against Israel. And in uh, the same chapter, uh, verse 2, it talks about how Babylon comes up against Jerusalem, which is uh, Judah, and Israel is mentioned in the chapter as well again. Doesn't mention anybody from the east, but Babylon. Now, we understand that the United States is the leader of Babylon today, but it will fall, and a new leader of Babylon will come up with a stronger empire even than the American empire of today, a world-ruling empire. And God will use the beast and the false prophet to destroy the great whore, which is Israel. Ezekiel 16 is good proof of that among many, many others. I mean, there's a lot of whoredom going on on the earth in terms of nations and politics, but we are the biggest and the greatest meddling in the affairs of the entire world rather than serving our God. So he says it is Babylon who will come against us, and Revelation does uh, echo that. Ezekiel 25 talks about how God will destroy the Ammonites, Moab, Edom, In the Philistines, the reason given is because of the injury and hurt and destruction they bring against his people Israel. God is going to punish us very clearly. And the Assyrian, it says, our lover, is the one that is going to bring it against us. These other nations will be allied in it and be a part of it. And he will punish them for what they do to the apple of his eye, Israel. So, Ezekiel is laying the whole thing out. Chapter 26, he talks about destroying Tyre because uh, and and Babylon is the one that does it. I've shown before that I think Tyre probably is represented by modern-day New York. 
but it is Babylon who comes against Tyre. Uh, Chapter 27 is more of the same. And in chapter 28, Tyre is used in an analogy uh, picturing Satan as Tyre. He's the great merchant. He's the great salesman, if you will, who has sold us down the river and has sold us a bill of goods. So when it speaks of Tyre, the great merchant, it isn't strange to me, if you stop and think about it, that God would use Tyre as a symbol of Satan, because he is the one who has truly sold us a bill of goods, and he's behind it all. Um, Chapter 20, and, and Babylon, confusion, is his kingdom. He is the prince of power of the air. He is the present ruler of this world, as we know from Scripture. So whatever is being done will be done by Satan through men whom he will raise up and use as his pawns. We think the Rothschilds and some of the Edomite bankers are the pawns, or that our politicians are pawns of them, but they in turn are pawns of Satan the devil. So the thing all goes back to him, and that's why that analogy is used. Uh, chapter 30, something important to note here is that he says the day of the Lord is coming. Now, we know the day of the Lord is preceded by a lot of trauma, and then the great tribulation, and then the day of the Lord itself begins. But the whole thing is the beginning of the destruction and the punishment that God brings upon the whole world, particularly Israel and Israel first, because we were given more, and God expected more of us, And we have not delivered, but we have gone into debauchery and paganism. So, he who was given most is expected more of. And we are it. And we will be destroyed first. So, the day of the Lord is coming. And he says he will bring the sword on Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and so on. As well as in chapter 31... uh, a mingled people with them. Now, Egypt means more than that little nation in northern Africa. The word is Mitzrium, poorly translated Egypt. It means the people of Ham, maybe some of them in particular, who will be involved as well. Uh, He talks about punishment coming in chapter 32 on Mitzrium, on Asher, the Assyrian, on Elam, and on Meshach and Tubal. He does mention uh, Meshach and Tubal of of Japheth in chapter 32 and comes down and talks about them specifically in chapter 38 and 39. So they may be in the mix to a degree, but by no means will they be leading it. It just won't happen that way according to the scriptures. Uh, Chapter 32 also talks about Edom, and we know the prophecies against Esau and Edom and how they will break the yoke of Jacob off their neck here in the end time and that they will oversee our financial calamity and also take a part in the killing of Israel. So God predicted these things long, long ago. Uh, He talks about a lot of the people who are in the graves of the slain, different ones. Chapter 33, he talks about watchmen in Israel and the responsibility and accountability that they have. If they see the sword coming and don't warn the people, they will be held culpable. culpable. If they do tell the people, then the people are held responsible. 
So today, I am trying to get this monkey off my back and put it on yours. In other words, I see a sword coming in the Scriptures, and I am warning you and letting you know that it is coming. Now it is upon you to do what is necessary to see if you can avoid it. We won't get into that a great deal today, uh, but that is another subject in itself. Chapter 34, many of the people of the Church of God, Greater Church of God, uh, refer to this one about the shepherds of Israel a lot. But I want us to recognize the context of this. Yes, it talks about a corrupt ministry, and we've discussed that a great deal. But toward the end of the chapter, it starts talking about how God will gather His sheep from where they are scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Cloudy and dark day, again, refers to the day of the Lord, does it not? When the sun and moon don't give their light and the clouds come in and darken the skies and great trouble comes. So, this is an end-time prophecy about these peoples and who will be punished in the end, not some ancient history story. This is talking about now in the years right ahead of us. And the cloudy and dark day proves that. Now, I want you to notice chapter 34, verse 28 in particular. It talks about Israel being in safe pastures, and they will be no more a prey to the heathen. Okay? This destruction that is coming is the last destruction upon Israel. Then they will be gathered from the places they have gone and will not again be prey. Chapter 35 talks about Mount Seir and is a prophecy against it. Mount Seir represents Edom or Esau, again in prophecy. And it says they will be destroyed because of their hatred and the damage they do to Israel. So, here again, God is talking about our traditional enemies, and Esau has been an enemy ever since the original episode with Jacob and Esau and the stealing of the birthright. Chapter 36 is a prophecy against the mountains, uh, mountains being symbolic of government in Israel. Uh, and because we have been shamed, now he will shame the nations who hurt Israel. So here he talks about the peoples, the nations, the government, good government ultimately to come, and how God will take care of our enemies for us. And who is he talking about through this section? Assyrians, Edomites, and so on and so forth. Not Japheth, not Gog and Magog. Uh, let's see. Now we get down to chapter 37. This is one that we have used classically to talk about the um, second resurrection at the end of the millennium. And I think that this is indeed true. It talks about the Valley of the Dry Bones. We're all familiar with the story. And how all Israel, these are the bones of Israel that will be resurrected. Now, you and I understand that the first resurrection is just the bride of Christ, 144,000. And Revelation 20 lets us know clearly 
that the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years is finished. So, this Valley of Dry Bones resurrection is referring to the resurrection of all Israel at the end of the thousand years, the great white throne judgment period of time. So, the setting here, if you will, is of after the millennium. Now, he goes on down in chapter 38 and 39. I'm in Isaiah. No wonder I'm having trouble here. Thirty-eight and thirty-nine is a prophecy against Gog and Magog, and how they will come upon Israel in the latter years, down the line. Now we are in the latter days of this age, but the latter years also includes the millennium, the last seven thousand years, plus that period of time, however long it is, of the great white throne judgment, when all those people will have a chance who have never been converted from Adam on down. So, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about that time. Now, this is the only time, apart from Revelation 20, the Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal, those peoples of Japheth in the east, ever attack Israel. But let's notice when. He comes against these people dwelling in safety. In verse uh, 8. Well, now, we are not dwelling in safety today. We're dwelling in the shadow of death in our nation today. There is danger all around us. There are people who hate us. We have been talking about all the nations that will rise up in a confederacy against us in the end, from Psalm 83 and now through all these chapters. Uh, But it talks about how they shall dwell safely, all of them, in verse 8. Speaking of Gog and Magog, it says, You shall ascend and come like a storm. You shall be like a cloud to cover the land, you and all your bands and many people with you. Thus says the eternal God, verse 10, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into your mind, and you shall think an evil thought. And you shall say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now, we have bars and gates and walls today. We have Army, Navy, Air Force, on and on, Homeland Security, whatever. We have all kinds of defenses set up today. Now, what we do with those is another story. But we are not an unwalled village or an unwalled nation. We have a very mighty military, even as they are taking it apart in sections. But they say, hey, these people are defenseless. Let's take them. That's Gog and Magog's attitude at this point in history, or in the future. To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn your hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Okay, They're coming up against people who have been gathered out of the nations where they have been taken captive. Now, it says in Ezekiel 34, which we just passed, that once they are regathered and put in safe pasture, they will never again be destroyed or taken captive. They will dwell safely. 
So this is people, our nation, which has gone into captivity, has been gathered out of the nations and dwell safely in the land. So it's not talking about this captivity that is coming up in front of us. It's talking about a period after that, when we have been regathered under the rulership of Christ and are dwelling in safety again. Therefore, verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord, In that day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall you not know it? Won't you see this? And you shall come from your place out of the north parts. They'll apparently attack, though they're from the east, they'll come around from the north, a polar attack maybe. Uh, you and many people with you, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, and mighty army. So he says, you're going to think this, and you're going to think, hey, we can, have, we can take them. They don't have any defenses anymore. And you shall come against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring you against my land, that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in you, O God, before their eyes." So he says, I'm going to let you attack. I'm going to let you come. And I am going to take care of the problem. Uh, thus says the eternal God, verse 17, are, ye, are you he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring you against them? Are you the ones that Ezekiel was talking about, he'll say? And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, says the eternal God, that my fury shall come up in my face. The red will rise in God's face when Gog and Magog come against Israel when this is speaking of. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken, surely in that day shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Why? Because Gog and Magog are going to attack Israel, and therefore God is going to shake everything. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things on the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him through all my mountains, says the eternal God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother." And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. In other words, whenever it is if you please, the Gog and Magog come against us, God is going to cause such a shaking and fire, hail, and brimstone and destroy them. It does not say that they will take Israel captive. It says God will make a, a name known for himself among all peoples, and he will destroy them with fire and brimstone. He may even turn a sword against them of their own making. Remember the time when God had the, the little lamps? They were coming down on, I think it was the Assyrians, was it not? Or was the Philistines in that case? Anyway, with Gideon. 
And they all jumped up and hacked each other to death. It sounds as if God is going to do the same thing here. He will put fear in them. And they will turn on each other. And he will destroy them of fire and brimstone. Therefore, you son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Eternal, uh, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. He's not against Israel at this point. He's regathered them from the captivity we're about to go in. And then Gog and Magog, at the end of that period of time, come against them. And I will turn you back and leave but the sixth part of you. And I will cause you to come up from the north parts and will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite your bow out of your left hand and will cause your arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your bands and the people that is with you. I will give you to the ravenous birds, every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, says the Eternal. And notice, I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the islands or coasts, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. He will protect Israel at this point. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. It's not going to be known that the United States Air Force defeated Magog and Magog, or that Gog and Magog defeat Israel. God is going to destroy Gog and Magog in the only time in the Bible that it talks about them coming against Israel. And it's very clear in the context that he's speaking of the time after the second resurrection in the Valley of Dry Bones when Israel is regathered from all the places that they have been taken captive and killed and made slaves. And then when Gog and Magog come, God will destroy them with fire, hail, and brimstone. And it will take, as we read on, seven months for Israel to bury them. They won't be burying themselves because God will not allow them to hurt Israel at that point. They, Israel will dwell in safety. And God will shake those people and kill them when they come after Israel. That is the story of the time Gog and Magog come. Now, let's tie that in with Revelation 20 and see if that context fits what is said back here. Here's speaking of the order of resurrections and how Satan... Uh, is bound a thousand years, and he would be loosed for a small season after that. How uh, the righteous will be resurrected when Christ returns and live a, and reign with him a thousand years into verse 4. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Uh, Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones, is speaking of that time when all Israel comes up. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. And he mentions Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, the number of which is as the sand of the sea. That's the same language we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, that would be Jerusalem, and and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Remember, fire, hail, brimstone, how God says he will destroy them back in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So the context of Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39 matches Revelation 20 perfectly. 
And they are not allowed to destroy Israel. So if you think the nations of the East are coming to destroy us shortly now, I think you are wrong. I think we have to look to God's Word and have Him tell us who will do it, because we have been told who will not do it, and not be allowed to do it. So if you want to point to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and say the Chinese are coming, they are, but not now. And when they do, they will have no effect, because God will kill them, and Israel will then bury them. End the page. Now, let's pick up more about what God says are true enemies. Now, I will not say that some people of the East are not upset with us. We are destroying their marketplace right now. But do you really think that our traditional enemies who have plans to establish a world-ruling empire are going to let the Easterners beat them to the punch? Especially when God says they are the ones who will destroy us. Let's see it. Uh, Asher is first mentioned in Genesis 10. Uh, Asher built Nineveh. He was a son of Shem, even though he came out of uh, Japheth. Uh, Hosea 14.3 says that Asher will not save us. Those are the three references in Genesis 10 and Hosea 14 to Asher. Now, Asher came down as the Assyrians. I think that's fairly clear in history. So, when we refer to the children of Asher from the table of nations, they're Semitic. uh, And they are the Asherites or Assyrians that we know today, and more than likely the Germans. Now, let's see some of the things that he says about them. Isaiah 52 is a prophecy of very much today. It's talking about the time when God is going to begin to gather, uh, first of all, the church. Uh, and here it says that we're to wake up and not be walked on by this new world order that is coming. And it says, For thus says the eternal, Isaiah 52, 4, My people went down aforetime into Egypt, uh, or Mitzrayim. That Egypt, in prophecy, is bigger than a nation or even a people of Ham. Egypt, or Mitzrayim, came to represent sin in general in the world. So, we have the peoples of this world who have, where we have sojourned, and they have done great destruction and led us into sin. Uh, instead of obedience to God. So we've sojourned in sin. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. That's historically a fact. And the Assyrian is coming again. We'll see that. Now he's talking about essentially the church here, even though it can refer in a later sense to Israel. Uh, Hosea 5. We'll get over into this a little bit. Hosea chapter 5. Hosea is an end-time book, quite obviously, and it has quite a bit of reference here. Hosea 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness, 
and Judah saw his wound, they went, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian. So they have been traditionally off and on our brothers, our allies, and our enemies. Look at the last hundred years just passed. Who has been the primary promoter of war against Israel? It's been Germany. So it is a recent history, not just an ancient history. But this is an end time. And where do we go? When we see our wound, when we see how sick we really are, we're going to go to the Assyrian for help. And sent to King Jareb, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wounds? For I will be to Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. Uh, chapter 11 of Hosea, verse 5. Here he's talking about Israel and how God tried to show love to Israel. Verse 5, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return to me, God is saying. Who is our king of the future? The Assyrian. Not in the millennium. That will be the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is an end-time prophecy for today. So the Assyrian is going to become our king. Micah 5. Here we have, in Micah 4, telling us to uh, get away from the Babylon that is about to be destroyed around us. And how God is going to preserve and protect the church in chapter 4. And then he says down here uh, in verse 2 of chapter 5, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel. So uh, he's, he's continuing the thought of the church here and how it is going to be brought forth <coughs> in a small way, led by the two witnesses which is a prequel to Christ returning and setting up rulership throughout Israel. Anyway, he says that we are to travail and be in pain in verse 3, and that someone will stand and feed in the strength of the Eternal, in the majesty of the name of his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. And that's certainly what's going to happen with the end-time church. And that man shall be the peace... When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise up against him seven shepherds and or eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. Does it get any clearer than that. This thing is going to be led by the Assyrian. And the two witnesses will come out against them. It says that he will make us a new, sharp, threshing instrument down in, uh, oh, where is it here? Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, chapter 4, verse 13. Isaiah 41 says a new, sharp, threshing instrument. God's church alone will have success against this beast power that is arising. 
No one else will, at least not initially. Uh, Ezekiel 23, we've already been there, says, I will deliver you into the hands of the Assyrian. Uh, Hosea 12, verse 1. Back a few pages again. Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. Now, what does the east wind portray here? If you feed on wind and follow the east wind, he daily increases lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Mitzrium. Or perhaps Ishmael is part of this. Ishmael may be the king of the south in Daniel 11. I don't know. I mean, Ishmael and mainly Islam as a possibility. But here when it talks about an east wind, it talks about the Assyrian and Egypt. It doesn't talk about the hordes of the east. Uh, Second Kings, I won't go there, but all through there, the traditional enemy of Israel is the Assyrian. First and Second Chronicles is the same. Assyrian, or the Assyrians are the enemy. Uh, Nehemiah 9, verse 32. Nehemiah 9, and Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah are talking about the church building the temple, and uh, later Jerusalem, I mean the walls of Jerusalem and Nehemiah. And here, who was their enemy originally, and who will it be again? Chapter 9, verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the terrible God, who keeps covenant and mercy, let, all, not, let not all the trouble seem little before you that has come upon us, and on our kings, and on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all your people. That's a pretty long list of history of Israel and Israel today. Since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day, who does he name as the problem all through Israel's history? The king of Assyria. Go to Isaiah 36. talks about Hezekiah and how the Assyrian came against. In that case, God caused the Assyrians to die. It wasn't time for Israel to be destroyed. I think if you go through those chapters, you'll find that Hezekiah has a very direct parallel of Herbert Armstrong. And Herbert Armstrong preached that the Assyrian was coming into our land to destroy us. Did he not? And now people are poo-pooing that and saying, well, that wasn't a fa- he was a false prophet. No, if you read that story in there, God did not allow the Assyrian to come during that time. He was, Herbert Armstrong was correct, he just didn't have the timing right. Now the Assyrian is about to come into our land. He will not be turned away as he was in the days of Hezekiah. That story ends with God telling Hezekiah that his sons would be carried into Babylon and made eunuchs there. And he said, well, at least there's peace in my day. Herbert Armstrong died And his sons have been taken into Babylon, back into paganism. The church has fallen apart. But there was peace in Herbert Armstrong's time. It's us, the church today, who have been made eunuchs, that is, powerless in that analogy. And the church has no power today. A remnant will be given power, but today it doesn't have it. So that prophecy about Hezekiah fits Herbert Armstrong and his administration and him perfectly. Jeremiah 2, 
Uh, let's go back there and pick up a couple of verses. Jeremiah 2. I want verse 18. Here he's talking. Jeremiah opens this thing, his whole book, with destruction coming on Israel. 2 verse 18. And now what have you to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of Sihor. Or what have you to do in the way of Assyria? To drink the waters of the river. Your own wickedness shall correct you, and your backsliding shall reprove you. So it talks about how we will then have an evil end. Notice verse 36. Why gaddest you about so much to change your way? You shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. We're going to be ashamed of the captivity we go into at the hands of this sinful world and the Assyrian in particular. So that's where the shame is coming from, not from China. Jeremiah 50, major prophecy about the destruction of this nation in chapter 50 and 51. Notice chapter 50, verse 17 and 18. Uh, Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria has devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon has broken his bones. So a consortium of a new Babylon, a rising beast, is coming against the old Babylon, us. And will devour us and break our bones. Nothing about the east, but our traditional enemies. Uh, Let's see, I've already gone through... Let's go to the book of Nahum for a moment. I've hit a little bit in Hosea. There's more there, but that should suffice. But the book of Nahum is interesting, too, because it's right in here uh, in the Minor Prophets. And it's talking through the Minor Prophets story about the destruction of the church and later the destruction of the nation. The church is destroyed, the nation is next. So the book of Nahum is stuck in here. Remember we just read in Micah, the book before it, about how the Assyrian will come in our land and those in the church will go out and stand against him. Well, here is a burden against Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And it talks about how the Assyrian and uh, Nineveh are laid waste because they destroyed Israel. I won't go through the whole book, but... If you just glance down through here, you'll see that it's talking about us disobeying and then Nineveh, the bloody city, destroying us. That's right here in the Minor Prophets. Zephaniah 2 we looked at uh, last week, but just to reiterate it here because it's coming up right here two books later. It talks about Nineveh being punished and destroyed because they are a bitter nation that came against Israel and against the church. So, in this particular chapter, there are several nations that are punished for coming against Israel. Uh, Zechariah 10. This is getting real close to the return of Christ, isn't it? Zechariah 10. He stands on the Mount of Olives in chapter 14, and here in chapter 10, leading up to that, and going on into the millennium that is set up. Let's see, where do I want? Verse uh, 10 of chapter 10. 
Speaking of his people, Israel and Ephraim in particular from verse 7, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. Now, you don't gather them out of there unless that's where they were taken. That's where we're going into captivity. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and the place shall not be found for them. Uh, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So, we are going to come out of captivity, the captivity we're about to go into, and then the Assyrian and the Egyptian God is going to destroy. The beast and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire when Christ returns. All right. Jonah is another story. I won't go there, but what did Jonah do? God told him to go and and have the Assyrian repent. Well, Jonah knew that the Assyrian was set up to be destroyed because of their animosity and destruction of Israel. And Jonah wanted the Assyrian, Nineveh, to be destroyed. He hated them. They were traditional enemies. So he refused to go preach to Nineveh. And you know what Jonah went through? And he went and preached to Nineveh. And of all peoples on earth that you would not think would repent... The Assyrians, Nineveh, did. And God did not destroy them at that time. Now they are coming against us and they will destroy us. So, there again, where is the historical enemy? He keeps mentioning Assyria, Babylon, Philistines, Ishmael, the Ammonites, and Moab, Egypt, and Edom. Now let's look at Isaiah 7 and the ensuing chapters, because here is very clearly an end-time prophecy. We've always used chapter 11 to talk about the millennium, when peace will be under, all, across the whole earth under Christ's rule. And I have applied it to the church, where God is going to bring peace to the remnant church at the end, and we will have the strength to go against the Assyrian and the beast and everyone else who is against God's church. It'll be us and the world, or us against the world. But here in Isaiah 7, it talks about a conspiracy of the past. Uh, And the confederacy was of Syria and Israel against Judah. And he shows here that Ephraim will fail within 65 years. He gives the sign from God himself of Emmanuel, that by the time a child is conceived and born and knows the difference between good and evil, Ephraim will be destroyed. That's us. So, from some point in time, he started counting 65 years on us. And the sign God gave then was of Emmanuel. Now, we have come to understand that that is a very good end-time substitute for the Jesus of Matthew, uh, that Emmanuel is another name. It says, you call him Jesus, they will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10 is an end-time prophecy. And we have adopted that because it fits the time when that was prophesied in the book of Matthew. Now, I don't want to get too much into that, but 
he turns it from just a confederacy of Syria and Israel against Judah into something else. Chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, no, not 7, 11. Uh, 18 uh, probably is where I want. Uh, before the child is old enough, or by the time he gets old enough to know good and evil, it shall come to pass, 18, in that day that the Eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the other part of the rivers of Mitzrayim, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. Uh, he's talking about the Assyrian coming against Ephraim. Uh, we go on down, verse 7, this is what I wanted, 8-7. Now therefore, behold, the Eternal brings up upon them, speaking of Israel, the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks, and he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then he tells the people, God does, he issues a challenge. Associate yourselves, you people, and come against. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. So God promises protection for those who will follow him, Emmanuel, God with us from the Assyrian when he comes. And then it talks about a confederacy, a conspiracy, a, an alliance of peoples who will come against. But very clearly, the Assyrian is the leader here. And God tells us, do not fear this confederacy, fear me. God is the only one who can save us out of what is coming, no matter where it comes from on the face of the earth, he says, don't fear the confederacy. So if we spend our time in worry and fear about who is going to attack us and just when and how they're going to do it, and our fear and our worry is there, we are disobeying God's instruction. Do we grasp that? If we are living in fear of being destroyed by anybody other than God, we are showing a lack of faith and we are showing a lack of understanding of the Scriptures because we have an enemy that we have identified or somebody else in the world has identified. I don't care who you think it is. God's Word is the only one that counts. And we're seeing what God says here. Now, I might misinterpret. I could be wrong. So it doesn't matter where it comes from. You're not supposed to be sitting and worrying about it. Who can deliver you? God. Well, fear Him and obey Him, and then you don't have anything to worry about, right? When Israel is obeying God during the great white throne judgment, and, he's, and God sends Gog and Magog against Israel, they have nothing to fear. Because God says, I will send fire and destroy them. Now, God is going to send fire and destroy this nation because of our collective disobedience to his laws. And he tells us, his church, 
that if we will obey him and serve him, he will account us worthy to escape all these things that are coming. Why fear when you have God? There's nothing to fear if we do obey. If we don't obey, then there is something to fear and worry about. We're putting our fear, if we fear this world and the new world order or the Chinese or whoever, we're putting our faith, our worry, our concern in the wrong place. That's the bottom line. But let's go on just a little bit here. Uh, Where was I? 718 and then into 8. Yeah, we were were reading down here in 8. Go 8... Uh, verse, well, I already covered this. Don't fear their fear in verse 12. Uh, later, he, punish, he punishes Assyria for doing this to us. Uh, 10, verse 24. This is, well, let's see. Let's go to, yeah, 10, 5 first. Uh, o Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him, the Assyrian, against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. (coughs) Howbeit he means not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Who is the rod of God's anger that he uses against Israel? How plain a statement do we need? Uh, 10.12 Wherefore it shall come to pass, that when the Eternal has performed His whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. And he'll be, he's the one who, for he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people. And have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. So he goes on and brags about what he's doing. And then God says, I will destroy the Assyrian because of what he did to my people. Chapter 11, verse 11. This is the chapter that begins with peace on earth, the kingdom of God. I think also a mini-kingdom God sets up beforehand. (coughs) Excuse me, as a light to the world because the context still shows the Assyrian. Chapter 11, verse 12, And he shall set up... No, wait a minute. Verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush. These are Semites, and Cush is Hamitic, and from Elam and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. So, he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. They're going to repent. But again, it's the aftermath of the Assyrians smiting us. Esau and Edom are also included. 
Uh, we know the prophecy against Esau because he hated Jacob and how he would be in the fat places and in the banking industry, and he would then break the yoke of Israel from off his neck in the book of Obadiah. It says, verse 7 of Obadiah, their confederacy will turn on them because of their violence to Jacob, verses 10 and 11. So, and then verses 13 and 14, they're involved in our riches and our goodies, our banking system. And Psalm 137, verse 7, talks about Edom uh, called for our destruction, and they're called there the daughter of Babylon. So, the Ashkenazi Jews, those who say they are Jews and are not, are actually Edomites and of Esau, and they are the ones holding the power and the purse strings over our nation today, and they are the ones who are destroying it before our very eyes. Uh, our leadership in Washington and the central banks of New York and London and Europe, they are the ones who hold the keys to our economy in their hands and they have just driven it off the cliff, it hasn't hit yet. But they are the ones who are destroying us before our very eyes. The Chinese are worried about it, yes. But they're not the ones doing it. They see the result. And they have a lot of money tied up in U.S. Treasury bonds, and they're worried about losing them. They don't want to see us destroyed right at the moment. They want some time to get their money back, to get it out of us. We'll see that here in a little bit. Now, let's look a little bit at the beast and the end time, because Daniel and Revelation have quite a bit to say about the beast, the false prophet, the end time uh, kingdoms that will arise, and let's see where they come from. I will summarize this, I hope, fairly quickly. Daniel 2 talks about the latter days, verse 28. So the whole book is sealed till the time of the end. So if there's an end time book in the Bible, uh, it's got to be Daniel. Revelation along with it, and of course the other prophecies. But none of the others were sealed, like Daniel was, until the time of the end. So anything you read in Daniel is talking about the time of the end. It may rehearse some old prophecies. It may use Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as historical uh, earmarks to what is coming. But it's all about the end when it describes those kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar represents a Babylonian kingdom of the end time. So when it says Nebuchadnezzar comes against, in all these prophecies that we have just looked at in Babylon, it's talking about the great end time beast that is arising, the New World Order, world ruling empire, and he uses Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a type of that which is to come and is almost upon us. So he talks here in chapter 2, verse 38 and down from there. I just want to hit the names that he discusses. Babylon is the head of gold. He talks about Medo-Persia, the breasts of arm and, and arms of silver, inferior. Greece, belly and thighs of brass. Roman, legs and feet of iron, toes mixed with iry, miry clay that will eventually fall apart and that whole beast will fall. No mention of anything in the east, but ancient empires of, of Shem, uh, of 
white folks, for the most part, uh, mixed peoples, Roman, Greek, Medo-Persia, maybe some Ishmael in there, but not Japheth. And then the kingdom of God is set up. So this beast, in the end time, is composed of the same peoples, essentially, that formed those ancient empires. That should give us some clues right there. So it's a commingling of the elements of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Traditional empires rehearsed, commingling with the seeds of many people, but the commingling is minor by comparison. And we've just read lots of scriptures, and there are more, about how the Assyrian will lead it. And Esau will do their money thing and help destroy us. Who are our destroyers? Who is God bringing against us? Daniel 7 talks about the four winds of heaven from every direction on the great sea and describes that as mankind. So this is to be a world-ruling empire led by a commingling of the ancient empires of history. Here it talks about four beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard. Uh, People have tried to say, well, the lion might be Britain who has its wings clipped off and can't fly anymore. Maybe the bear, which would devour much flesh. We speak of the Russian bear. Uh, That might be the case. Uh, The panther or leopard, Germany, uh, Blitzkrieg, uh, panzer movement or or divisions and so on. Four birds, four wings, but the dominion is given. And then the fourth has the eyes of a man, has ten horns, and that is the beast that comes out of all this, the fourth the most destructive, and it will be destroyed in a burning flame, it says here in Daniel 7. The first three had dominion, but it was taken away. They survived for a while, but the great power was given to this one with the ten horns. And it does not say anything about uh, the east. Uh, Daniel 8 talks about the ram and the goat, a major prophecy here about a goat coming from the west who destroys Medo-Persia and Greece. I think that this is referring to the United States, which does not touch the ground, uh, wreaking havoc in Iraq. And then we will attack Iran, and then we will have our horn broken. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but here again, uh, the United States is a key player in end-time prophecies in spite of the Protestant evangelists. And we go against that area of Medo-Persia of the past. And we have already done at least half of that, and now we're in a big fight with the Iranians about nuclear power, and who knows where that will go. Daniel 8 may tell us. So here again, it's not the Far East, but the Near East. Daniel 11 talks about the king of the north, king of the south. I believe uh, some consortium of Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, perhaps Egypt, Arabs, some of Ishmael perhaps, may comprise the king of the north because that's a confederacy that is talked about in Psalm 83. And those are our traditional enemies. King of the south could be, uh, I I said Arabs and Ishmael, that's more, I I meant uh, that to be king of the south. Uh, Some of Ham. Uh, may be the whole Islamic world of Daniel 11. 
the traditional Semitic powers of the north and the uh, Arabic nations, essentially, of the south. Not China or the east, but north and south are the main protagonists in Daniel 11. And they destroy us first. The beast and the whore destroy the, I mean, the beast and the false prophet destroy the whore Israel. And even in Daniel 11, it talks about uh, the king of the south worrying about, or no, I guess it's the king of the north worrying about, no, it's the king of the south worrying about tidings from the north and the east. He worries about it, but Israel doesn't. We're destroyed by then. We've gone under. Now, what about the dragon? Is that China in history or in prophecy? People say, well, the dragon represents China. You see dragons on all the firecrackers and stuff that come out of China. Uh, don't think so. Revelation 12, the dragon is cast down from heaven. Speaking of Satan, Satan's the dragon. Uh, you can go to several scriptures and see that. Revelation 12, 3 through 17. Uh, Revelation 13, 2 and 4 talks about Satan as the great dragon and that everybody turns really and worships him instead of God. So Satan is the dragon of the Bible. He's also known Genesis 2 and Revelation 12, 9. He's spoken of as the serpent. So dragon and serpent go together speaking of Satan. There's no place that it refers to the dragon in prophecy in the Bible as China or the nations of the East. Let's go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Here it describes this end-time beast, some of what we've been talking about in the book of Daniel. I know I'm going through this rapidly. I'm covering a lot of ground. I don't want to spend more time on this than is necessary. I want us to understand an overview of prophecy. So I'm hitting a lot of scriptures quickly to show you, if you will, the buzzwords. So don't try to get, again, all the detail of this because there's so much detail I'm overlooking. It would take probably 50 sermons to go through this line by line. But let's see the names that keep coming up. Let's see what God keeps talking about. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do is give you an overview of where God is coming from and the ones that he keeps mentioning over and over as where the problems come from, not what we might assume or think based on a few things we might see going on and that others might see. So this beast of Revelation 13 stood upon the sand of the sea, that is, upon the peoples of the world, I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. That doesn't mean out of the Atlantic Ocean. It means from among the people. Having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And he had the elements of what? A leopard, a bear, a lion, uh, those things that we have referred to as Semitic empires of the past and the present. Uh, people commonly refer to Russia, to Germany, uh, to England, if it is a part of this, the lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. The dragon being Satan the devil. There again, uh, 
That is pretty clear in verse 9 of this of chapter 12. I didn't read it, I referred to it, but let's read it. Chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then it shows that he comes against the church, tries to destroy it, and the remnant of her seed. So clearly, in the book of Revelation, the dragon is not some peoples from the east, it is Satan himself. And he is the one who gives power to the beast, here in chapter 13, verse 2. And the whole world wondered after the beast, verse 3. And then they say, boy, look at the power that's here. He's given power 42 months. (coughs) He makes... War with the saints, verse 7, and overcomes them for a period of time. And they that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's in verse 8. Verse 11, another beast comes up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So this one has horns like a lamb. So God's people are lambs or sheep. Christ is the chief chief shepherd, so this is a religious beast that comes up. Uh, Horns like a lamb, but the things he said were of the dragon. Might come as an angel of light or a lamb of God, but truly what he says comes from the dragon. He exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this religious leader... Is going to give his blessing or endorsement to the first beast. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Now remember this beast is a conglomeration essentially of Semitic peoples, our traditional enemies that we've talked about over and over and the Assyrian, the rod of God's anger, and where we come out of captivity from when we are then once again gathered. So this beast is not of the East. This beast is of our traditional enemies. We've read that in prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Uh, let's see, 14.8, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. If you worship the beast, uh, you'll drink the wrath of the wine, of the drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So he warns us not to worship it. But Babylon has fallen, has fallen. America is falling, and the great consortium, a world ruling empire, the new world order that comes out of it, will then also, after its short fame, fall as well. And Babylon then will be destroyed forever. Notice it is Babylon that is referred here. And Daniel speaks of Babylon as a conglomeration of all those empires of the past that we talk about in the book of Daniel. And it's not of Gog and Magog. It's Roman, Greek, Persian, uh, Babylonian, Chaldean. Now, Revelation 17 speaks of Babylon, that great city which rules, and how the beast and the false prophet killed the whore. That would be us. So, here, this 
this Babylon that is arising will be the mother of harlots and abomination of the earth. Chapter 17, verse 5. So again, it's a conglomeration of those nations, just like Daniel says. Now let's go to uh, Revelation 18. Here it reiterates again that Babylon falls twice and has become the habitation of devils in verse 2 and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So, all kinds of birds. Uh, the unclean, the filthy, those who are not obeying God but are following Satan or demons. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. So this is a, an entity here who has had political dealings with the whole earth. Who is the greatest economic power of this age? The United States of America. No one else is. The Catholic Church is not. Has the Catholic Church made the nations rich? No. They have taken from the nations throughout history. We are the ones who have made many, many nations rich in this end time. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Walmart. <clears throat> and I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Micah 4 says, Come out of Babylon go into the wilderness, and yet dwell in Babylon. So God's church was raised up in Babylon in the end time. And though we're to flee Babylon, we're to go into the wilderness even in Babylon. That's why we're out here in the desert of the United States, getting away from the power and effects of Babylon the best we can. And God, if we obey, will deliver us here so that we're not sinning with her, and therefore will not have her plagues. See why it is so important that we cut off our ties with the Babylon around us. And that means every part of it. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And then she says, verse 7, How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, and don't Americans say this in their heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Americans will find a way, will get out of this problem, and everything will be great again. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Now, who have we made rich? Japan, Korea, Taiwan, now China. What are these people going to do when they see our destruction? Now, you go on down through this chapter, and it says that the judgment will come, verse 11, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise anymore. The nations of the east, brethren, are not going to destroy us they're going to weep and wail and mourn when we are destroyed because we won't be buying their goodies anymore. 
will be gone into captivity to Assyria, to Edom, to the traditional enemies that God says will destroy us. From them we will be taken out and gathered when the time of gathering occurs. These people are not going to destroy us. They'll weep. They will wail. They will mourn over us. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones, pearls and fine linen, I'm in verse 12, and purple and silk and scarlet and all your thion wood and all manner of vessels of ivory, all kinds of trade things. Uh, Verse 15, the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. They're going to see us. They're going to fear they're going to have the same torment, and they'll stand way back, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to nothing. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood far off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like this great city? They cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her wealth, for in one hour is she made desolate. Look at the trains going across this country. Whose name do you see on them? Mostly China. Go to Walmart. Whose products do you see? Mostly China. Go to Target. Same thing. Go almost anywhere in America. Almost any store. Made in China. Cars not much yet, but four-wheelers are starting and cars would be next. We made Japan rich. Now we're making China rich. And oh, they're going to hate it when we go down. They aren't going to do it. They're going to cry and mourn and weep when it happens. Verse 23, the light of a candle shall no more shine at all in you. Speaking of us, the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all that were slain upon the earth. Where are the saints? Mostly here. And this is where they will be taken into captivity. This is where they will go into martyrdom and death. Not somewhere else. We have been, not enemies of, but traitors with the East throughout the history of Israel. Go to Second Chronicles 9.21. Solomon shopped in Tarshish, even as we shop there today. Tarshish being one of the sons of Japheth in the East. Isaiah 23.1, the ships of Tarshish, Asia, and how Tyre is destroyed and it upsets the peoples of the east because their market is gone. Ezekiel 27.12 talks about Tarshish, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech, the traders with Tyre, who will wail when she is destroyed, as we see here in Revelation 18. So what is shaping up, brethren, in this world? Is that we have made the peoples of the east rich, 
And they today are not happy with us because they see us having our dollar destroyed. They see the market being destroyed. They have bought government bonds from the United States to try to keep us propped up so that the dollar would still have some value. And all this money they've made would still hold value for them. But now they see the dollar being destroyed, inflation coming up, and their dollars are worth less and less. So they're upset, yes. They may rattle sabers. Maybe they did blow the missile over the California coast a few weeks ago. Maybe they did. People have rattled sabers and shown and flexed their muscles many, many times through the past. That's nothing new. I don't know who fired it for sure. Could have been them. Could have been a false thing by us. Could have been a lot of different people. Maybe it was China. I don't care. Just because they fired a missile at a time when we were negotiating with them over there about the dollar doesn't mean they're going to attack us. It means they're trying to make a shape up and do what they want done. But the Bible is very clear that it is our traditional enemies who will rise up against us and who will destroy us and where we will be taken captive and then gathered from later on. And Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal are going to mourn when they see it happen because all they're trying to do right now to preserve the wealth that they have earned from us, they're going to see go away and they're going to weep and wail and say, oh man, that's not the way we wanted it to come out. We wanted to get our money. And these guys have messed up our party. Do you really think that Esau, Edom... The so-called Jewish bankers in Europe and America are going to see what's happening and not hit first? Do you think the Assyrians would not hit first? Because it is that consortium of peoples who are in control of our economy. They are the ones who are destroying the dollar. They're the ones that the Chinese are wringing their hands about because they see their wealth being destroyed. And that's the way it's coming down. That's what God says. Now, maybe I'm not looking at it right, but boy, the buzzwords just come up over and over and over again, don't they? And the same old empires of the past rise up again in Daniel and Revelation. Bottom line, it really doesn't matter, does it? Where it comes from. But I think we need to understand the whole flow of the Bible and the whole flow of history and understand when Gog and Magog do come and it's when Israel has been gathered and is dwelling in peace and safety and God destroys them when they come against us. The only time in the Bible that they do attack us is after the millennium into the great white throne judgment appears and God will destroy them for their trouble. Meantime, We need to worship God and fear Him and obey Him and serve Him and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all these horrible things that are coming upon us. I went over last week and I quit early today.